Okay. It says here, For if by one man's offence death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offence of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offence might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, once again, we praise you and we thank you. We glorify you for the word which you've given us, the word which you've preserved down through the ages, that we can look into and see who you are and know more about you and understand who we are this morning. Heavenly Father, I pray that your spirit would be our teacher this morning, that we would be willing students with our hearts and our minds open to your truth. We might receive it and that might, we, we might grow thereby that that our lives may produce a sort of fruit that would bring you glory in this life. We thank you once again for the precious salvation in which we share. We thank you for the position which you've you've, uh, placed us in and the position you've taken us from. And we just pray now that the name of Jesus will be glorified through this sermon and through the rest of this day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. A fellow called uh, A.W. Tozer once said, The most important thing about me is what I believe about God. Interesting thought, isn't it? The most important thing about me is how I see God. And why would that be important? Well, how I see God is going to determine how I respond to him. What my relationship with him is going to be like. If I see God as as an angry tyrant, I'm more likely to run away and hide. If I see God as as a loving creator who has my best interest at heart, then I'm more likely to go to him when I'm in need. How I see God determines how I respond to him. And I generally agree with that statement. But if that's the most important thing about me as a person, how I see God, the second most important thing, I think, is how I see myself. Because how I see myself, what I see myself as, will determine, to a greater extent, to how I behave in life. How I see myself will determine what choices I make each and every day. And I'll give you an example. I have, I have uh, relatives in the police force. And when you speak to them outside of uh, their general working day... Um, they're just like me and everyone else, laid back, relaxed. But when they put that uniform on, when they put that badge and they've got that gun on, the, on, their, on their belt and they've got the uniform, they take on a different persona. They behave like a policeman. They see like a policeman does. They're there to uphold the law. And all of a sudden they take on a different type of character and they live up to the character 
that they addressed him. <clears throat> We've been going through a series of sermons now that are focused on who we are as people. Because I believe quite strongly that the more we understand what God says about us, the more we understand that, the more we believe that, the more likely we are to live up to that. And today we'll be looking at something that is not often spoken about from behind the pulpit. And I sense sometimes a bit of fear behind the pulpit and sharing this sort of stuff because know, we might take it a little bit too far. But I'm, I'm of the opinion that if we understand who we are, then we're more likely to actually live the sort of life God wants us to live. There is an interesting story told in the Bible about two brothers, and they were twins. One came out first, and his name was Esau. And his little brother came out, and while he was coming out, he actually had, had taken hold of the heel of his brother. His name was Jacob. And these two were very different characters. They weren't, obviously they weren't identical twins because the Bible says that one was hairy, very hairy, and the other one was smooth. And they had very different lifestyles as well. They actually grew up to be very different types of men. And their parents were named Isaac and Rebekah. Now, if you go through, if you know much of your Bible, you'll understand that the firstborn, the firstborn male in a, in a Jewish family held a very special place in terms of the inheritance, privilege, honour of that position simply being the first. You were the privileged one. The inheritance was better for you. The honour was double for you. And Esau being the first had that privilege. The Bible says that, that Isaac, his father, loved Esau because Esau would bring him venison. He was a hunter and he would bring him this meat that he just loved to eat and he loved his son. He was, must have been a bit of a brutish sort of guy. But the Bible also says that Rebekah loved Jacob. And Jacob desired what Esau had. Jacob wanted that position. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 25, verse 29. And we'll see a, a story here that, that reveals a lot about the character of these two men and how they saw themselves. Genesis chapter 25. Verse 29. And Jacob sod pottage. Jacob had made himself a meal of beans, basically. Lentils. And Esau came from the field. And he was faint. He was worn out. And Esau said to Jacob, Feed me, I pray thee, with the same red pottage, for I am faint. Therefore was his name called Edom. And Jacob said, Sell me this day thy birthright. And Esau said, Behold, I'm at the point to die. What profit shall this birthright do to me? And Jacob said, Swear to me this day. And he swore unto him, and he sold his birthright unto Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and pottage of lentils. 
And he did eat and drink and rose up and went his way. Look what it says at the end of that verse. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Now imagine that. You are destined by birth to have a special position, to hold a special position in your life. Something you will inherit from your father. And he sells it for a plate of lentils. Sure, he must have been really tired coming out from that field. He must have been really worn out. But he sells his birthright. And the Bible says that he despised it, which means he didn't treat it like as anything. It became of no value to him. In order to sell something for that cheap, he mustn't have valued it from the beginning. His position as the first son would have entitled him to a greater share, a more prestigious position, but he sold it for virtually nothing. Where Esau might have reigned, have been lord over his own brother, he sold that to his brother. Turn forward a couple of chapters to Genesis chapter 27, verse 36. Now Jacob, um, sorry, Isaac, their father, was about to die. And both of the boys were due to go to him and get their blessing from their father, receive a blessing from their father before he passed away. And as it was their custom, he would have given the greater blessing to, to the eldest, Esau. But Jacob wanted that position, that blessing so much... He actually pretended to be his brother. And he actually went to such a stage, he actually prepared the same food his brother would prepare for his dad. And he even put some goat skin on his arm so when his dad touched his arms and his hand, they would feel hairy. And look what happens in verse 36. Jacob has already been in to see his father. He's received the blessing from his father that he would would normally give to the eldest son. And then Esau arrives on the scene, a bit late, in verse 36. And he said, Is not he rightly named Jacob? For he hath supplanted me these two times. Now these two times were the first time when he sold his birthright to him and now the second time when he tricked his dad. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. And he said, Hast thou not reserved a blessing for me? And Isaac answered and said unto Esau, Behold, I have made him thy Lord. And all his brethren have I given to him for servants. And with corn and wine have I sustained him. And what shall I do now unto thee, my son? Nothing much left to give when you've given everything to the first. That's a pretty sad story when you, when you think of it. And yes, I know what you're all thinking. Jacob was a bit of a plotter. He was a deceiver. He tricked his dad. But we find that Esau hated his birthright from the beginning. He treated it as nothing. 
And the Bible says that God hated Esau, but loved Jacob. Why? Because Jacob cherished that very thing. A very similar story is told of at an earlier time in man's history when a certain individual in the Bible was given a birthright, was given a special position and a privilege. And his birthright was to have dominion over the whole world. Dominion over the world. Imagine that as a birthright. But instead of valuing that birthright, that blessing, he despised it. And he sold it for a pittance. He sold it for something that would be his downfall and his burden, not only for himself, but for the rest of his generation. And that's the story of Adam and Eve. That's the story that we're reading about here in Romans chapter 5. It was man that was given a special position by God himself. A special place in all of creation whereby he had dominion over the whole world. Turn to Genesis, turn back to Genesis chapter 1 verse 26. Genesis 1.26 says this, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So, man, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them, and God blessed them. And God said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. That's a nice blessing, isn't it? That's a, that's a good inheritance to have. You have everything. Everything is under your feet. You have been given a position of authority over the entire planet. It was man that was given the reign over this planet. It was given to him by his creator. Instead, something happened. Man sinned. Man chose to obey someone else rather than obey God, who was his Lord and his master. Man lost his rightful place in the structure that God had created because he lost dominion over the most important thing himself he became a slave when he sinned when Adam, and Eve, when Adam and Eve sinned by eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil man the Bible says became a slave to sin where at once he was free and had dominion the next moment he became a slave and was ruled by something else or someone else. Man then became incapable of doing right, incapable of exercising proper judgment because judgment had been stripped from him. 
Let me ask you a question. Can one be a proper judge in matters of law when they are guilty of breaking the law themselves? Think about that. Think about the Australian government needs to appoint uh, a next, the next judge, High Court judge for the High Court of Australia, and they've got a, a few candidates to choose from, and they've all, bro- they've all been criminals in the past. What confidence that would they give you about their being able to make proper judgment sitting with the gavel? Not much. Would they be given that, that honour? No. In today's society, in our, in our system of law, if a man is a lawbreaker, they can't be a high court judge, can't be a Supreme Court judge. You can't be a judge if you have a criminal record. You can't judge properly in those matters if you are guilty of breaking them yourself. So question here, can man have authority over the planet, make proper judgments about what's right and what's wrong and what to do and how to govern when he has lost the ability to govern himself? when he has lost the ability to actually keep the law and understand the law himself, when he has lost the ability to judge properly, and this is what we find with mankind each and every day. We see in our society, we see in every society in the world, an inability to be able to judge between right and wrong, an inability to be able to live those laws. The Bible says that every man has a conscience, but no man lives by his conscience. Every man is a lawbreaker, the Bible says. That's why Romans chapter 5, verse 17 says, For if by one man's offence death reigned by one. Death reigned. Death was now in charge. It ruled. And it continues to rule, in a sense. Death reigns over man. Man became the slave the slave to sin. And look at all the... Paul has a wonderful way of contrasting things. And if you look at the first part of the verses 17, 18, 19 and 21, you'll notice a, a distinct pattern here. Verse 17, the first part of it says, For if by one man's offence death reigned by one. Verse 18, Therefore as by the offence of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners. Verse 21, that as sin hath reigned unto death. Not a pretty picture there. Because by one man's disobedience, death has reigned over this world since then. Sin and death have reigned from the fall of man. Man has been ruled. And has lost dominion. But in most stories where a king is deposed, most of you who, uh, who know your, your Bible history, in most stories where a king has lost his throne to someone else, it's generally lost to someone who desires that throne. And the one who orchestrated the downfall of man... The one who sought himself to have dominion, the one who tricked man into losing his rightful place, was Satan. 
In John chapter 10, verse 10, the Lord says, The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. That's a wonderful picture of who Satan is and what he has done. Satan's purpose much like, was much like the purpose he had for heaven. He wanted to steal God's throne. He wanted to be there. And in, in, in our case, he wanted dominion over this planet and he obtained it. He obtained it by stealing the position that man had, that man had been given. His purpose was not only to steal dominion of this planet, but also to kill man and to destroy all hope. And he did this through the power of death, through the power of sin, which is the sting of death. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself, that's our Lord, likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death. That is the devil. The devil has, from the fall of man, had the power, been able to use the power of death to keep man in subjection to himself. For those of you who like their history, let me ask you a question. What was generally the fate of a king who had his dominion taken from him by someone else? Was it a good outcome normally? Would they be given a, a, or you just go away now and you fix up, we'll give you a plot of land and you go and take care of yourself? What would be the general result? Was it a good one? No. What was it? Execution. I'll go a step further. What was generally the, um, the result? Once a king had been deposed, what would their family have to look forward to? <laughs> Not much. Not much at all. In fact, um, the grave was generally what they had to look forward to. When a king was generally deposed and their rule was taken by someone else, generally they were done for. But not only them, but their entire family was generally done away with. And there was reason for it. There was reason, because if one king defeated another one and took his throne, then the fear was that one of their descendants, if they were left to live, would one day try to rise up and gain the throne back, you see? So you had to wipe out the entire family, the entire line, just in case someone in the future may come up and say, I'm the rightful king. And then people would begin to band around them. So yes, if you were a king, you're in a fairly interesting position. If you're the family of the king, you'd want to hope that king stayed in, uh, in power. And this is the, um, the associated problem that man has having succumbed to Satan's trap, you see. The power of association. It's a very interesting uh, thing. We are associated, or man is, associated with Adam, you see. We are Adam's direct descendants, each and every one of us. And having lost, Adam having lost his dominion, and someone else has taken his place, being the devil. Now the devil has a few other plans for man. 
1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22 says, For as in Adam all die. So mankind, by association, is in Adam. Now, put that picture in your head. All of mankind is in Adam. And as a result of that association, all of mankind is destined for the same fate that Adam was destined to, and that's hell. Because Adam chose to obey Satan rather than God. Adam sinned, and so did Eve. And by association, all of mankind is guilty. By association, Satan would have all of man destroyed. When Adam chose to sin, he chose a life independent from God. Independent from his maker. But as a result of him wanting to be independent from his maker, he became a slave to Satan. That's why the Bible clearly calls all men sinners. All have fallen short. All are worthy of hell and judgment. We are all linked to Adam as our representative father in his sin. And since Adam represents our ancestry, he represents our lineage, our family, and we belong to that family. All men represent a fallen kingship over this planet, a failed position that God had created and man had relinquished. Just like Esau sold his birthright for a pot of beans, man sold what he had for a lie. line of kings. In the line of kings in Israel, especially after the division of Israel between Israel and Israel, Israel became two states, basically, uh, Judah and Israel. If you go through the history of, uh, of Israel, of the southern kingdom, you'll find, you'll find a, a great number of kings taking, coming in and going out and coming in and going out. And, and each time, or very often, you find the previous king was done away with and a new line was, was, was taken up and you continually see this pattern over and over and over again. Turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4, because I just want to make this point very clear. 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4. Now, most of, most of us know about the struggles between King Saul and David. King Saul was the first king of Israel, anointed to do the, the job, um, given a special privilege and honour, and he failed miserably. God said, you're out. I want David now to be my king. And Saul was not too happy about that. So Saul spent a lot of time trying to chase David and catch him. And he wasn't trying to catch him so he could have a, you know, a get-together and a coffee. He was trying to catch David because he wanted to do him in. But David had a very good friend. And he was named Jonathan. Jonathan was the son of Saul. And even though Jonathan's father, Saul, hated David, 
because he saw him as a threat to his own power, um, these two got along very well. 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4 says, And Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son that was lame on, of his feet. He was five years old when the tidings came of Saul and Jonathan out of Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And it came to pass, as she made haste to flee, that he fell and became lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Okay, what was going on here? What went on is that Saul and Jonathan had been killed in battle. Saul and Jonathan, they, they, were, they were fighting. And um, David wasn't in that particular scene. But they had been killed. Now, when the family of Saul, his other sons, found out that their father and, uh, and, uh, and Jonathan had died, the first thing that goes through your head is to run. Because the first thing they would expect is that David would come and wipe them out. So that's what we find the nurse doing here. She grabbed Jonathan's son and she went to run with the little kid. And instead she tripped, dropped him, and the, the, the child fell, must have broken his legs, and he was lame for the rest of his life. The nurse had, had good reason to flee. Because it was custom in those days to do away with the previous king and their whole family. So the nurse had good reason to get out of there. Turn to... Let's go to verse 5. And the sons of Rimmon, the Berethite, Rechab and Benah, went and came out, came about the heat of the day to the house of Ishbosheth, who lay on a bed at noon. Ishbosheth was the son of Saul. And they came thither into the midst of the house, as though they would have fetched wheat. And they smote him under the fifth rib. And Rechab and, and Benah, his brother, escaped. For when they came into the house, he lay on his bed in his bedchamber, and they smote him. That means they killed him. And slew him, and beheaded him, and took his head, and gat them away through the plain of night, all night. And they brought the head of Ishbosheth unto David, to Hebron, and said to the king, Behold, the head of Ishbosheth. The son of Saul, thine enemy, which sought thy life. And the Lord hath avenged my Lord the king this day of Saul and of, and of his seed. Now, just, just understand that for a moment. These guys who went there and killed this guy in his bed, took his head and brought it back to David, were David's own men. They thought they were doing David a favour by getting rid of Saul's son. Look at David's response in verse 9. And David answered Rechab and Benah, his brother, the sons of Rimmon, the Berethite, and said unto them, As the Lord liveth, who hath redeemed my soul out of all adversity. When one told me, saying, Behold, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good tidings, I took hold of him and slew him in Ziklag. Who thought that I would have given him a reward for his tidings? How much more when wicked men have slain a righteous person in his own house, upon his bed, shall I not therefore now require his blood of your hand and take you away from the earth? And David commanded his young men and they slew them. 
and cut off their hands and their feet and hang them up over the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the sepulchre of Abner in Hebron. That's a nasty, isn't it? These guys came back thinking they would do. They had done something really good for David. Look, David. David's heart wasn't like that. David had a very different heart. In fact, he loved Jonathan and his family. And instead of uh, rewarding these two young gentlemen for their bravery, for killing someone in their bed and taking their head to David, he had them executed for what they did. David's heart wasn't inclined to wipe out Saul's family. In fact, later we read about that, that, that young child, Mephibosheth. We find David looking for someone of Saul's family so he can be kind to him. And they find Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth is brought to the king's palace. Mephibosheth would have been very nervous. Because generally, when you were brought to the king's palace and you were in the line of previous king, then you were possibly in a, in a fair bit of trouble. trouble. David was very different. David looked at him and said... Um, I want you to come and eat at my table for the rest of your life. David brought him into his own house and allowed Mephibosheth to eat, be part of his own family for the rest of his life. Now, I I told you that story because we are, in a sense, a bit like Mephibosheth. Because I'm going to tell you the good part of the story now. Man lost his privilege and his honour and his position as, as kings over this earth. We lost it to a king who absolutely hates us and who would want us dead the first chance he gets. The only reason we, that mankind is alive is that God has stopped Satan from destroying mankind. But there's another king that has come on the scene now. There is another king who is about to claim his throne, who is a stronger king than the evil king. And he only desires to seek the good, like David sought for Mephibosheth. And we, like lame people, we, like people who had no power within ourselves to save ourselves, to, to take back what was rightfully ours, have been saved and allowed to eat at the king's table. The one who did win back the throne. The good part of the story is that Jesus came to take his rightful place as the king of this world. Like some epic battle between two kings in past time, Jesus took a cross up to Calvary and allowed himself to be killed by the the very men he came to save. And though Satan thought that he had won a victory over Christ, he rose three days later, in three days, and he defeated death. He conquered sin, and he took back from Satan what Satan had stolen from us. He has taken his rightful place. The Bible says that 
that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever. Amen. Jesus has won the victory over Satan and has claimed the throne both in heaven and on earth. And that's the second part of the whole wonderful story. Because the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15.22, For as in Adam all die. So everyone who was born as planet is in Adam, is a descendant from Adam. But the Bible then says, Even so, in Christ shall all be made alive. This is the power of association. If you're associated just with Adam, then you are worthy of death. You will die. But if a new king has come on the scene, or the king that has taken his rightful place has now defeated the old king, and if we are in him, we are associated with him, then we will be made alive. How did he do this? Well, I'll turn to Luke chapter 4, verse 17. Luke chapter 4, verse 17. The first thing he did was that he freed us from being captives. He freed us from the bondage that we were in, that Satan had us under. The Bible says in verse, Luke chapter 4, verse 17, And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah, or Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Jesus read those words and he said that today they're fulfilled in your sight. He was the one who came to the earth to free us from the bondage that Satan had us in. He is the one who came to set us free. He is the one who came to give us sight. To heal our broken hearts. And he did it by dying in our place. He did it by paying the penalty that we deserved. And he paid for our sin in full. Now that's a wonderful thing, isn't it? You know when you have a debt to someone and there's a debt you can't pay. How do you feel? How do you feel when you, when you have a monstrous debt over your head... And there is no way, doesn't matter how hard you work, how much money you earn, there is no way of ever paying that debt back. That's a scary place to be. The Bible said that he came and paid our debt completely. So we have no longer any debt toward God. He paid the penalty for our sin. He paid it on the cross. But he did more. He did more than that. He didn't just make our bank balance back to zero again, did he? Because the Bible said he did much more than that. And if you turn to Romans chapter 4 verse 21, we find the the next thing that he did for us. Romans 4.21 says, And being fully persuaded that 
what he had promised he was able to also to perform, and therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone, I was talking about Abraham here, that it was imputed to him, but for us also, to whom it shall be imputed, for we believe on him, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. Now what, what is Paul talking about here? Something very simple. Um, when Adam sinned, the Bible says that his sin, his death, was imputed to us. Which means we carry the burden as well. The same burden that he had, the same sin that he performed, because we were in him, then we, we have a debt that we can't pay. His debt was imputed to us. A bit like handing down, you know, the debt. It's a bit like passing your debt on to your children. That's what happened. His debt was passed down to us. To every child, to every descendant of his, the debt was passed down, a debt we could, none of us could pay. But the Bible says that if that was a debt we couldn't pay, not only did, was that debt paid for by Christ on the cross, but that the righteousness of Jesus Christ was imputed to us who put our faith in him. The righteousness of Christ... How good is Jesus Christ? How, how much goodness do you want to measure that he was able to perform in his lifetime? The Bible says that, that out of all the books that were written about him, if they wrote everything that was ever to be written, there wouldn't be enough paper on this, in this world to cover it. That's the righteousness that was imputed to us who put our faith in him. In other words, our bank account, our debt was paid... And then our bank account was filled up with his goodness, with his righteousness. In other words, when I stand before God one day, I've got a huge thing to show him. And I didn't do it. I just said, here you go. That's what I'm going to say. Lord, I don't know. One day I was, I was there with a huge debt. Didn't know what to do. And the next minute I know I've got this huge amount of money in my account. And that's yours. Adam's sin was imputed to us. But the righteousness of Christ was imputed to those who put their faith in him. He was delivered for our offences and he was raised again for our justification. Let's look at the end part of those verses in Romans chapter 5 again. Because we've read the first part of them. Let's look at the second part of them now and see what Christ has done and how he did it. Romans 5.17. Look at the second part of it. Much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. What does it say that righteousness is? It's a gift. That was given to us. We didn't try to win it, earn it. We don't deserve it. It was a gift that was given to us. Verse 18. So by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. Verse 19. So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Verse 21. Even so, my grace reigned through righteousness unto eternal life. By Jesus Christ our Lord. Isn't that a wonderful picture? Instead of the fig leaves that Adam and Eve tried to sow to cover up their shame, 
God clothes a believer. When someone puts their faith in Jesus Christ, God clothes them with the righteousness of his own son. At one stage I was filthy and naked. I, had, I didn't deserve anything because I had turned my back on him. And, and next minute I know God paid to clean me up. And he said, here you go. Not only are you, are you now clean, here are some beautiful clothes for you, white. And you can stand now, instead of shame and hiding, you can stand before me clean. And a whole. What did I do to deserve that? Absolutely nothing. He gave me wonderful clothes. Wonderful clothes that my Saviour bought for me. We've been given the garments of kings. Again. We've been clothed with the purest of clothes, already fit for heaven. Those wonderful clothes were a gift. Being in Christ, in Christ, means that we are no longer identified with Adam, our original father who messed everything up. The Bible says that we are now identified with Jesus Christ. We no longer wear the rags of a prisoner or a slave. We are now free men and women. And you know something? We belong to a royal family. A royal family. And that bloodline will never pass away. That throne will never be defeated. God's promised that. We have literally, the Bible says, been made kings and priests. Revelation 1.6 says, And he has made us kings and priests unto God and of his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Have you claimed Jesus as your king this morning? If you have, if you have accepted the sacrifice that he's made on your behalf, if you've put your trust in him, the Bible says that you are now a king again. Too often we see ourselves separate from Christ. But the Bible says very clearly that we are the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12.27 says, Now ye are the body of Christ and members in particular. 1 Corinthians 6.17 says, But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Ephesians 2.6 says, And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Jesus is sitting on a throne now. And we sit with him. And we've been given an inheritance simply because we've been adopted into this family. Romans 8.17 says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so, 
be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. We are joint heirs with Christ. First Peter tells us once again that ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. He is the king of kings. He is the king of kings. He made us kings. And he is our king. So what's your duty as a king? Well, the Bible says that we not only be made kings, we've been made priests. We've been made priests in this world. Well, a priest does a few things. A priest, a priest offers sacrifices to God. You're thinking, what? What sacrifices is there to offer? Well, Psalm 51.17 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart, a God that will not despise. That's your, that's your job as a priest, to come before your king and your creator with a, with a, a broken spirit and a contrite heart, being a priest involves adoring God, adoration, confessing sin, giving thanksgiving to God and supplication for oneself and others. That's prayer. We have, as, as his children, the unique privilege of being able to come before his throne and say, Dad, we've got a few things we have to talk about. First of all, thanks for who you are. Thanks for what you've given us. God, we need, we need some things to help us along. The Bible says that he inclines his ear and he listens to us and he answers our requests. If we understand our role as kings and priests, we will understand that the king has made a certain decree for us. And the decree we find in Romans chapter 6 verse 9. Just turn with me there and what's our last, our last passage. Romans chapter 6 verse 9. Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more. Death hath no dominion over him. For in that he died, he died once, uh, sorry, unto sin once. But in that he lived, he lived unto God. Likewise, reckon yourselves to be dead Indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those who are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you. For ye are not under the law, but under grace. For sin shall not have dominion over you. Can I ask you a question, Christian, this morning? Do you feel as if sin has dominion over you still? Well, you shouldn't. We've been freed not only from the penalty of sin, which was eternal damnation in hell, but we have been saved from the power of sin now. 
Sin shouldn't have any dominion over us. If you understand your position that Christ has put you in now, the Bible says that you are more than a conqueror through him that loved you and me. There is nothing that can separate you today from the love of Jesus Christ. There is nothing that can take that away. You you are now in a royal family and you should see yourself as such. Because Jesus has won the victory for us. How you respond to sin now is determined by how you see yourself. Do you see yourself as a struggling person trying to to fight this battle in your own strength? Or do you see that Jesus has already won the victory for you and he is now ruling from heaven? If he has decreed something, if he has decreed that we are no longer under the dominion of sin, do you believe it? Do you trust the victory that Jesus has won for you? Sin has no more dominion over us. And we should know that because if we are in him, then we are already victorious. Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. How do you see yourself this morning? Has sin gotten the better of you? Better of you? Have you called on Jesus as your Lord and Saviour? Because if you haven't, then you are still associated with Adam. And there is only one path that 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 will lead you to. You are still under the dominion of sin, under the rule of Satan. And Satan has only one plan for your life. That's your destruction. We sang a beautiful hymn this morning. O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's a light for a look at the Saviour and life more abundant and free. Through death into life everlasting he passed and we follow him there. Over us sin no more has dominion for more than conquerors we are. His word shall not fail you. He promised. Believe him and all will be well. Then go to a world that is dying. His perfect salvation to tell. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Have you turned your eyes upon Jesus yet? Have you seen who he is? Have you recognised him? Have you accepted the wonderful offer that he's given to all men? Have you accepted that offer for yourself? Or are you still wanting to carry the burden of sin with you? There's, there's life more abundant and free if we simply put our faith in him. It's a wonderful position. One minute full of sin and shame and death going to hell and the next minute adopted into a royal family. Your sins are paid for. You have a an account that will never run out and a father that loves you. Some might say, oh, I can't see myself in that way. I couldn't see myself as a king. You know, I might get too proud. You know, I, might, I don't want to be thinking too much about that idea. Well, 
<clears throat> you know pride, if you can't accept something that God has clearly declared about you, maybe a point in pride of itself. If God has declared it and you can't accept it, then you may be just a bit too proud to accept what God has already said. There's a story that's told by Iraqi Jews a long time ago about an unusual custom that when a king would die in a particular kingdom, that the throne wasn't passed down to his son. But instead, what they would do was they'd gather all the people in the hall, the people from uh, uh, the family and, and, uh, and workers or whatever it is, they'd gather them all, and they would turn a bird loose. This bird would fly around until it eventually landed on someone's head. Now, at that stage, there was a, there was a, uh, a slave of the current king who would, um, whose job it was to keep the king amused. And this fellow... Um, would dress up in really strange sort of clothes and make the king laugh and he would, he would perform certain acts and on his head he had a, a hat made of chicken feathers and he had a belt made of, of, of sheep's hooves and, um, and he dressed in strange clothes. And as it happened, when the bird was released, it landed on his hat made of chicken feathers and he was made the king. So they immediately gave him the king's clothes. And what he did as his first thing as king is he made a little hut next to the uh, royal palace and he, those things that he wore, he put in there, in that little hut next to the king's palace. And every uh, morning he'd get up and the first thing he'd do is he'd go across the little hut. And he was known to be a very wise king and very, very um, uh, loving king. He changed the rules and regulations and he made... He, he, he took away inequality and he took away, he made people um, uh, better. He made the kingdom more just. And he had this habit of going to this heart. And one day his, uh, his most treasured advi- uh, advisor said to him, Why do you go into that hut every morning? And he said, Well, what I do is I, um, I go in there every morning and I, I put on my chicken's hat. And I put that belt that I used to wear made of sheep's hooves and and the dirty clothes that I used to wear and, and I used to parade around and as a slave I used to do this job and I, I, I look at myself in the mirror. He goes, and I, looked at, I keep on looking at myself in the mirror until I start crying. Why? Because so I would understand where I came from and what I now have. He goes, that's, that's the reason I, I am the king that I am. Because... I don't look back, but I see where I've come from. And that keeps me humble. When you read the word of God and you understand what's been done for us, when you look at the price that was paid by our Lord and our Saviour for us who didn't deserve it, we should be crying every day. We should cry every day to understand where we were, what we deserved and where we now are. Have you made the choice to follow him as your king? And if you have followed him as your king, don't forget what he did for you. And remember who you are now. God bless you. Thank you.